I am an easy target for marketers trying new versions of products that we do not need. They're always trying new flavors of chips. In fact, I've got a picture of a couple of things that they've tried recently. Cappuccino-flavored chips. Yeah. You know what tastes good? Chips. You know? Just chips. You don't need to do anything to it. Just chips. Coca-Cola has put out this coffee-flavored soda, and I don't get it. You know, because you know what's good? Coffee. And you know what else is good? Coca-Cola. You know what's not good? The combination of the two. But I was shocked when I saw this, but this is an actual headline. McDonald's tried to create a bubblegum-flavored broccoli. Yeah. I, you've never seen it, right? Because uh, you know what tastes good by, all by itself? Not broccoli, no. <laughs> why McDonald's doesn't sell it. This is not good. So there are lots of versions of products that we don't need because there's probably someone out there who's going to love it and who's going to want it and it just, it's for them. And you've probably gotten into a product that they since discontinued and you're just so frustrated they don't sell Crystal Pepsi anymore or whatever the product was that you were particularly interested in. But I think that reality, that idea of like, we need to have a customized version of everything actually does fit the whole concept of church. Like there are a lot of people who feel like, well, I need to find a customized version of church that's just for me and just fits particularly my needs, rather than stretching ourselves a little bit and saying, well, wait, how can I grow? How can I change? How can I become part of a community that maybe doesn't like, isn't customized to me, but that I can adjust who I am and part of what I do and the way that I think and interact and worship. There's part of that. But it gets worse than that because we actually have in our culture a lot of variations on the idea of Jesus. We have a lot of variations. You would think we would just stick with original Jesus because why do we need an update? Why do we need a customized version of Jesus? But we do. For example, I don't know if this was in one of my grandparents' house, but I feel like I saw this picture of Jesus growing up uh, when I was a kid. This version of Jesus was the one that was everywhere. Like Jesus went to glamour shots and they told them, don't look directly at the camera, look to the side. He had a hairstylist blow his hair out a little bit, maybe a little bit of makeup. They had the lighting guy do it just right. I felt like I saw this picture of Jesus everywhere. And of course, is this this what Jesus looked like? Like not even close, right? Not even close. But when somebody says, well, imagine Jesus, this is probably, unfortunately, the, the idea that comes to mind. Or maybe you've seen movies about Jesus. Those can be pretty popular. And there's been a bunch of actors who have played Jesus. I was surprised to discover that Batman had also played Jesus. Did you know that? Yeah, Christian Bale has played Jesus as well. I don't think that's what Jesus probably looked like either. When I was a kid, probably one of the most formative ideas of who Jesus was came to me through the Bible I read. And I wish I could tell you that I was some scholar who read some Greek version of the Bible, but the Bible I read was the New Testament picture Bible. (laughs) And it was the comic book version of the Bible. And I loved it. And I'll tell you what, I nailed the trivia in Sunday school because of this Bible. I was pretty good at it because I was so into reading the comic book version of Jesus. But here's the Jesus that was presented to me in the comic book version 
of the Bible. There's all kinds of portraits of Jesus, but, but there's also, even besides these, there's the agenda version of Jesus, where Jesus supports your thing. We're in the middle of a political season right now, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard a politician say, well, Jesus would be, he wouldn't say this directly, but Jesus would be on my side. If you care about Jesus, you'll vote for me, and Jesus would support the specific ideology or policy that I'm promoting. And it's very specific, it's very focused, it's very agenda-driven version of Jesus. And maybe he would, but Jesus was pretty hard to pigeonhole. They tried to nail him down. They tried to get him to take their side, and he just never really seemed to do it. He just seemed to be able to walk above all that. I'm not sure Jesus would sign your petition. Growing up in the church, I've been exposed to people trying to get me interested in Jesus by giving me a stereotypical Jesus that wasn't necessarily the one we see in scriptures. One I've heard several times growing up is that Jesus was a man's man that he was muscular, that Jesus was ripped. And the reason they say that is because he was a carpenter, so of course he had muscles. I've seen some carpenters. They don't all have muscles. They're just regular guys. I don't know, but the idea that they're trying to say is if Jesus lived today, he would walk around in a tank top, veins bulging out, he would probably drive a Harley, he would be a tough guy. Maybe, I don't know. Or I've heard a lot of people say, well, Jesus, of course, would dress up suit and tie. He would look very dapper, cufflinks. He would look good every day of the week, not just on Sunday. But it's very stereotypical, and I think those versions of Jesus tell us more about the person than they do about Jesus. Lots of versions of Jesus that I'm not sure we need, because you know why? I think the original's pretty good. I don't think we need a variation. I don't think we need a customization because the original Jesus that we have been given is pretty, pretty good. We don't need a new one. Presley was telling me about a commercial that aired during a football game that he watched, and the commercial was for Jesus. Not for a church. There was a little tagline at the end that said, you know, come to this church or support this charity. It was, it was literally a commercial for Jesus. Have you guys seen that? I didn't know it existed. So I looked it up, and sure enough, there's these primetime commercials being aired to support Jesus. And the, the, the organization that does it, their, their little tagline, if you go to their website, is they say it's to free the story of Jesus from hypocrites and extremists. Interesting. They feel like Jesus' image needs to be rehabilitated in society. Now, I get the instinct. I'm a little uncertain about $100 million to fix Jesus' branding. I don't know. But I think they feel like the original Jesus has gotten a little bit lost. And, and, and definitely, we could do a better job of presenting an accurate picture of who Jesus was. But I don't know that Jesus needs better PR. In fact, he handled hypocrites pretty well, and he surrounded himself with extremists. So I'm a little conflicted of, of that, but whatever. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, writes, We can't assume that by saying the word Jesus, we are automatically in touch with the real Jesus who walked and talked in first century Palestine. He finishes by saying, We are not at liberty to manufacture a different Jesus. I think he's right. We're not at liberty to manufacture a different Jesus because that's tempting. It's tempting to construct a Jesus that affirms our preferences. 
that likes the people we like and dislikes the people we dislike, that confirms our desires, that fits our lifestyles. It's very tempting to construct a version of Jesus. But the problem is, when we have a constructed version of Jesus, then there's nowhere for us to go. There's no room for us to transform because we don't have a Jesus that challenges us. We don't have a Jesus that calls us out. We don't have a Jesus whose words we read where he says things that are pretty tough to wrap your mind around, like sell all you have and give it to the poor. We don't have that anymore because all this version, this customized version of Jesus can do is kind of confirm what we already think and what we already believe. I think this is true. I think the image of Jesus is a little clouded, and I think that we need to see Jesus clearly because Jesus is compelling. It's compelling. H.G. Wells, you know, science fiction author, he wrote that a historian like myself who doesn't even call himself a Christian finds the picture around the life and character of Jesus irresistible. Just something about the, the original, who he was. All sorts of dogma and tradition have been imposed upon his personality, but from underneath the mass, this man himself keeps breaking through. I love that. And that's what I want to happen in this sermon series that we're starting today, is letting the real Jesus break through. Not just to have the right beliefs, to be able to check the right boxes, but to have the right portrait of who Jesus is, who he was, and what he is calling us to do. So, so let's start with this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? How do you answer a question like that? Who is Jesus? This isn't easy because, first of all, we have to break down our constructs of who he is. We have to get rid of the Christian bales and grandma's picture on the wall. We have to undo all those, and we have to rebuild from scratch the original idea of who Jesus was. Now, this is interesting, but the Gospels, the story of Jesus, they don't ever describe how Jesus appeared. They, they never do. There's no section in there that says he was about this tall and this is what his face looked like. I have a biography of Abraham Lincoln that one day I know I will read, but I have not read yet because it's really thick and the print is really small and I got other things to do. But I have a biography of Abraham Lincoln that I've started and the beginning of the biography is a description of Abraham Lincoln and how tall he was and lanky and his deep set eyes. And what's crazy is that there's a photograph on the cover of the book of Abraham Lincoln and then inside it you also get a description. But the Gospels never do that. The Gospels never say, this is what this guy looked like. This is what you would expect. This is what you would see. The Gospels don't actually address very many of his skills. They don't address, was he a good carpenter? I don't know. Did he make good stuff? I would imagine, right? He's the son of God. I would imagine he makes really great tables. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of scholars believe he was a construction worker, and the carpenter is kind of a fancy term for that. But he was a construction worker. Was he a good one? Maybe. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It just says that's what he did. It doesn't tell us, like, was he good at certain things? Was he a good cook? I don't know. Was he funny? You have records of Jesus saying humorous things, but you don't know. There's no, anywhere in any of the Gospels does it say, oh, and the crowds died laughing because Jesus was hilarious. You know, there's none of that. We don't know many of his skills. It really doesn't even talk about much about his personality. 
There's verses that we can garner some idea based on some of the things that he said and did, but it's not like the gospel author sat down and wrote, oh, Jesus, he had a really bubbly personality. He was really energetic. I mean, we don't know his Enneagram number. You know, everybody wants to know what's your Myers-Briggs, what's your Enneagram. We don't know any of that. What were his hobbies? What were his interests? What kind of things did he do on the side? Because if someone were to come to me and say, hey, uh, tell me a little bit about your, your spouse. Tell me a little bit about your wife. Well, I, I could say things. I could say, hey, she's a wonderful human. She's a great mom. She's really wise. She can see situations clearly and respond in a really thoughtful way. She's got great taste in husbands. I could tell you all <laughs> kinds of things that would describe her, and the Gospels just don't do that. They don't do that about Jesus. What they do is primarily record what he said and what we did, and from those descriptions, we construct this idea of who Jesus was based on people that claim to have been around him, to have walked with him, to have sat with him, to have eaten with him, to have heard him teach. Now, I said there's not a lot of places that say this, but there are a few uh, that tell us a little bit about his character and who he was. And we're going to actually anchor our entire sermon series in one text that tells us a little bit about who he was. John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, this is, if you go back the last 13 verses, we've established that the Word is actually the Son of God. The Word, capital W there, that's why the translators put that there, became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And then it says this, and I love this phrase, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's our sermon series for the next four weeks. Grace and truth. And what we want to remind us is that this is who Jesus is, full of grace and truth. Isn't that a wonderful description? Because often we assume that those things are in conflict, grace and truth. We assume that they don't coexist well. You can be truthful or you can be graceful. We treat them like they're intention, but they go together. To be around Jesus was to experience grace and truth. Our versions, when we construct our own versions, we tend to emphasize one over the other. But, but you know this. Truth without grace, it's like surgery without anesthesia. Like, yes, it maybe needs to be done, but you, you, should, you should consider the way it's impacting the person. But grace without truth is like offering a Band-Aid to someone with a broken arm. It doesn't really help them. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now, remember, it's not just that we want to have an accurate picture of who Jesus was. What we want to do is we want to be compelled by that vision of who Jesus is so that our lives are transformed, so that our lives are changed, so that we're challenged, so that we're different people. It's not just to have accurate knowledge. It goes somewhere. And so we want to think about this being full of grace and truth and how we respond to that. So let's think a little bit about how the Gospels described who he was. And let's focus just, first of all, on what he said. He said a lot of things. We're not going to read them all. But I just want you to think a little bit about how Jesus communicated. For example, 
Um, most of the parables that you are familiar with, almost all the parables are 250 words or less. That is shorter than a tweet. And yet, those parables have had this incredible impact for millennia. The parable of the sower, you remember the different kind of soils? 151 words. That's it. This huge impact. You probably heard dozens of sermons about it. 151 words. Parable of the lost sheep, where Jesus says, I leave the 99 to go find the one. That's 80 words. The, the parable of the pearl of great price, where you sell all you have to seek this thing that is eternally valuable. That's 31 words. Jesus was a genius communicator. He was a genius teacher. His longest speech is about a thousand words. That's the very longest that we have recorded in Scripture in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. About a thousand words. Sermon on the Mount. Covers the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, uh, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the, the stuff about loving your enemy, seek first the kingdom of God, turn the other cheek, the Lord's Prayer. That's all in there. That's in less than a thousand words. Every word he said mattered. It meant something. Our family, Corrine and I, I guess I should say, we use a phrase when we or our kids start catastrophizing, you know what I mean, where we start spiraling and we start saying, well, if I don't get this right or get this done, then this thing's going to happen, and then I'm sure this is going to happen, and this other thing, and then everything's going to come falling apart, and my wife will wisely say, don't borrow trouble. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We say that all the time. In less than a thousand words, Jesus has given us so much dense, powerful wisdom that there are aspects of your life that are completely different than they would have been had Jesus not said those words. Seek first the kingdom of God? How often has that challenged us to reevaluate the, the choices we're making in our careers or the choices we're making for our families? Just that phrase. Jesus was, he was a genius. Now, this stuff that has deeply impacted your life is shorter than just about any article that you read this week. Any article that you read. I was actually curious what some of the longest novels in the world were. And the really long ones nobody's ever heard of because nobody's going to read them. They're like 2.5 2 million words. But the longest novel that maybe some of you have read, I have not, is Les Miserables. Of course, translated from the French. Anybody here read Les Miserables? All right, we've got two people. What an educated audience. All right, very good. How many of you have seen Les Miserables? Yeah, that's how we take in our literature these days. That's how I do it. Anyway, I read an article about how long Les Miserables, the book, was that was longer than the Sermon on the Mount. The article about how long the book was is longer than the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was a genius at communicating deep, eternal truths in just short little sentences and statements that deeply impact our lives. So, because he's so good at it, we all agree, right? We're here on a Sunday morning. Of course we agree that Jesus was a good communicator. Because he was a good communicator, we all listen to him, don't we? Hmm. Yeah. See, that's the problem, right? Jesus was a genius teacher, so we all listen to what he said and do what he asked, don't we? This is what's crazy. 
even in a church, and I will consider myself part of this, this group, even in a church who believes Jesus was genius, who believes he was the son of God, who believe he taught eternal truths that should transform our lives, even we recognize that there are things that he taught us to do that we're not doing. Isn't that wild? That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. I do it too. Why in the world would we believe this about Jesus but not live in a way? We, we, we don't listen. We don't listen. It's interesting because there are people who heard Jesus with their own ears who also didn't listen to him. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. I love these little uh, signals that you get sometimes of what it would have been like to interact with Jesus. But Mark chapter 8, verse 11 says this. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. <sighs> Deeply sigh. In fact, he had just finished feeding the 5,000. And they're like, okay, cool miracle and everything. But can you give us a sign that you are who you say you are? And this was Jesus. This is how uh, Mark describes Jesus. He's like... I don't think he's saying this, but I think he would say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you not paying attention? Are you not listening? Come on. I think that's funny. I, I know that feeling. I think every parent knows that feeling, right? You're trying to teach your child a little bit of responsibility. You give them a glass of juice and you're like, okay, hold this very carefully. Do not spill it, right? And what do they do immediately? Spill it. Like, I literally told Liam not to break his arm again, and he did it. I mean, come on. I specifically said, don't do that. Just like, ah. Uh, every teacher, I would imagine, I mean, every teacher who has some kid say, you didn't tell us this would be on the test. I'm typing. I don't know why I did that. That was like a T-Rex thing. <laughs> you didn't tell us this would be on the test. Or a pa every parent who's like, you're not teaching my kid well. I'm sure the teacher is just like, are you kidding me? I said it, I emailed it, I texted it, I telegrammed it, I sent it by carrier pigeon. You had the information. Are you not listening? Teachers in the room are like, yes, and you just <sighs> deeply sigh. I had to call a bureaucratic agency recently, part of the federal government, um, and I had to explain everything to the first person and they said, oh, okay, well, I can't help you. Let me transfer you to this department. And so I explained everything to the next person after being on hold. And they said, oh, that's the wrong department. You need to go talk to this department. And I was like, that's the department I just talked to. They sent me to you. Don't do it. And then click. And you're like off to another thing. And then you're like, okay, I think I was just talking to somebody from your department. Oh, well, give us all the background. Give us all the information. Oh, we can't help you. Let me transfer you. And I'm, no, you got to be kidding me. You get that click and you get that hold music. You're just like deep sigh. You can feel the words of Jesus, can't you? People aren't listening. The deal is, hearing Jesus, Jesus full of grace and truth, is a posture. And this is important because I think a lot of us, even in the room, even a lot of us who have grown up around church, who have grown up around really good versions or visions of Jesus, still aren't hearing a Jesus that's full of grace and truth. My wife will tell you I'm an excellent listener. I always listen to everything she says, and I read every word of every text. She's teaching the kids right now, so uh, let's just keep that among this group because I don't want to brag. <laughs> but I, I came across instructions from an organization called the Global Listening Center. 
I didn't know there was such a thing. And I'm like, well, that must be about hearing aids or something. Nope, it's about how to listen better. And they had seven instructions for how to listen better. I'm not going to read them all, but wives, you can jab your husbands in the ribs right now and write a few of these down. Number one, uh, here's number one, best practice. Look like you're listening. <laughs> right? Yeah, look like you're listening. Eye contact a little, yeah. Don't look at your phone. Don't look at your watch. Don't look at other people. Look like you're listening. Number two, use your head. This is a literal quote. Nod using clusters of three nods at regular intervals. It's a real quote. Not seeing any nods in the room. I'm a little disappointed. You heard me? Okay, yeah. Three nods. Three. Two is not enough. Four is too many. Three. Three nods. Body language. Uncross your arms. Actually, they go further. They say uncross your legs too. I don't know why, but do it. Pay attention. Nod. Uncrossed arms. Looking. All right? And then four. I'm not going to read them all because there's a lot of them, but I thought this one was funny. It said remove barriers. Remove barriers. Anything between you and the person you're talking to. So if you really want to make a deep point, you need to remove barriers, right? My arms are uncrossed, my legs are uncrossed, I'm looking at all of you, and I'm nodding. Yes. Mark chapter 4, verse 9 says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a weird phrase. It actually comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and Jesus was kind of adapting it. But every time Jesus would say something profound, every time he would offer one of those verbal punches that said, hey, this is important because you're not doing the thing that I'm talking about, he would end what he said with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In fact, in some places in scripture, he actually shortened it and said, he who has ears. That's all he said. Jesus wasn't saying, listen, you need to have ears. He was saying, you need to check your heart. You need to check your rebellion. You need to check your defensiveness. You need to check the things you're thinking. You need to uncross the arms of your heart and listen to what I'm saying. Because I am speaking nothing but grace, full of grace, and full of truth. You need to listen. And it's about a heart posture. Jesus would say, I just gave you truth. I just gave you truth. Do you have ears? Or I just gave you grace. Do you have ears? In fact, sometimes I think for those of us that have grown up in some churches, the harder thing we have hearing is not truth. We can hear truth all day long. We like to be slapped upside the head with truth. Oh, that was a good sermon because I felt really bad. What we need better ears to hear is grace that I have forgiven you. Jesus, I don't deserve a second chance. As Jesus is like, we're not on second chance here. We're on 250 second chance here, but you still have it. Do you have ears to hear that I am full of grace? That's an important one. That's one that I need to remind herself because if somebody comes along and says, Patrick, you're not doing good enough. Well, the voices in my head confirm that. I believe that. I hear an internal voice saying that all the time. But if someone comes along and says, hey, You'll do better next time. I believe in you. I'm like skeptical of that voice because I don't always have ears to hear grace. Let me say two things as we begin to wrap up that are pretty obvious. You are not listening to Jesus if you are not in Scripture. 
You do not have ears to hear grace and truth if you are not engaged regularly, habitually with Scripture. That's not an easy thing to do. That's not an easy thing to hear because many of you are like, I, I'm busy. I got stuff. I don't, I don't have time. I've got things going on. I'm just telling you, you do not have ears to hear if you're not even listening to what Jesus said. Secondly, and this is important too, you're not really listening if you're not responding. See, hearing grace and hearing truth is a posture of the heart, but it is also a response of the will. What am I doing? What am I changing? What am I challenging myself in? How am I opening myself up? How am I repenting? How am I listening? John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me and follow me. Thanks, Jesus. I got it. I appreciate that. No, and they follow me. So the question we have to ask ourselves is our version of Jesus real? Is he full of grace and truth? Is he real? Are you listening to his voice? Those are important questions. Maybe we've built up a construction of Jesus that isn't actually real, but just kind of confirms all our biases and allows us to do exactly what we want. That's not a real version of Jesus. We have to deconstruct that idea of Jesus and rebuild the original because we have a version of Jesus that's pretty good and it's the one God has given us. It's the one who lived a perfect sinless life, the one who offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, the one who rose again and then went and found people who had betrayed him and reconnected and reconvened and said, hey, that wasn't good, but I love you. Full of grace and truth. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. If you have a wrong version, a wrong idea of Jesus, then to grow in him means to deconstruct that wrong version and then allow God to rebuild the truth in you. You're actually growing closer to him by removing those false ideas that maybe you've been taught or maybe you've assumed or maybe you've grown up with, that's actually growing to be removing the falsehood. That's a good thing. 